We know there are times where you're just too busy to sort through the mass of information that comes your way. So to make it easier for you to stay informed, subscribe to The Morning Agenda, WITF's news podcast, where the only agenda is you. Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC Heart and Vascular Institute. With experience, cutting-edge technology, and a collaborative approach, you'll receive the most advanced treatment. More at upmc.com slash centralpaheart. Even though climate change may be a fact of life today, and especially moving forward, there aren't many books or stories that make a changing climate part of the fictionalized story. Retired environmental lawyer and now novelist Joel Burkett has done just that, weaving a love story, self-reflection, ambition, and a few twists into a new book, Reap the Wind. Joel Burkett joins us on The Spark today. Welcome to the program. Scott, it's a pleasure being here, and let me thank you for having me on, and also uh, congratulate you on your upcoming retirement. Got a few months to go, so, (laughs) well, thank you very much. So, what inspired you to write Reap the Wind? I've uh, been involved in environmental issues for a long, long time, and my first uh, three novels uh, were written, uh, my first one was called Drink the Beast, (laughs) I'm sorry, Drink to Every Beast, and that is a novel about dumping hazardous waste in the uh, Susquehanna River. My second novel, Amid Rage, is about a um, coal mine permit uh, battle, and my third novel, Strange Fire, is about fracking. So it, when it came time for me to write a new novel, it was just natural that I would write a novel about climate change. Plus, climate change really is the existential issue uh, of our time, and I really felt that I wanted to do what I'd done in my previous novels, which was to educate people gently, the way I like to do that, about climate change through fiction, and that was something that I, I felt I could do with this new novel. Why don't you think there are a lot of stories out there, or or kind of like any stories out there, novels, fiction, about uh, climate change or having climate change in in the background? There is a genre of fiction called cli-fi. Really? Okay, that's the first I'm hearing that. Okay. Cli-fi is uh, a takeoff on sci-fi. So many of those novels that are written in the cli-fi genre really are science fiction type novels. And so unless you're an aficionado of science fiction or someone who follows cli-fi, not too many of the climate-based novels have really uh, made it over to more traditional uh, reading lists. So uh, there are novels out there, but uh, unfortunately, they're they're just not uh, all that popular, I suppose, or they're not popular outside of a narrow group of readers. So I wanted to write something that would be um, read by a larger and wider group of people. Now, Clive Fi, most of uh, the books or the stories in this genre, are they horror stories or catastrophic stories, the end of the world kind of stories? Many of these stories talk about a time in the future when uh, the climate has just gone completely awry. And uh, so they're dealing with a time 50 or 100 or 200 years from now when uh, the people who are still around are dealing with awful climate issues. 
And so a lot of those stories, like I said, they're, they're sort of science fiction type genre. They're excellent books. Some of them are really, really excellent, excellent stories. But uh, many of those really are just uh, more science fiction-y than they are today kind of stories. Well, that's what makes your book unique in that, as I said, there's a love story there with climate change in the background. And we'll talk about it. So, you know, I mentioned to you before we get on the air, when we talk about uh, novels, fiction, uh, don't want to go too far because we don't want to give away the end of the, of the book, but describe uh, what's going on, the plot of uh, Reap the Wind. So Reap the Wind is um, the perfect storm meets the firm. So we all remember both the book and the movie, uh, The Perfect Storm, about the most horrific uh, storm ever to hit the Northeast. Uh, it happened about 20 years ago. And The Firm, of course, is John Grisham's great novel about a, uh, a law firm uh, that is a very, very dangerous place to work. And uh, my story is kind of uh, what would happen if those two stories came together. So uh, the basic premise of my story is that a young lawyer who is named Josh Goldberg is sitting in his firm's um, uh, seminar that they're putting on down in Houston, Texas, bored out of his mind. He, he just wants to go visit with his girlfriend who's up in a room. And uh, he is outside is a raging hurricane. And uh, unfortunately, what happens is she is eight months pregnant and decides ultimately that she's going to head back to Philadelphia, which is where they're from. He has to stay because he's on the program for the next morning. So she gets on an airplane and starts flying off to Philadelphia only to be diverted to Cincinnati and then ultimately to end up in the hospital. So I can tell you that much without giving too much away uh, of the story. The, the, the important thing is, and this is really what the story is all about, is he decides that he's got to be with his girlfriend, Keisha Jones. He's got to be with her. Uh, because uh, she may be having their baby. She's over eight months pregnant. She may be having their baby, and he wants to be there. But nobody is flying. Nobody. There are no trains running. There's no nothing. He ultimately is able to rent a Lincoln Town Car from his friend, the uh, limo driver. And he and his best friend, uh, Jeff Roberts, are planning on driving up to uh, Cincinnati together. And at the last moment, uh, his boss, Diane Scanlon, who is... A great antagonist. I tried mm. to make her as evil and she vicious is. as I could. I think everybody knows a person like <laughs> Diane, by the way. And so she decides to, uh, to, she finagles a ride and comes along with them. So it's it's kind of the, um, the buddy trip from hell. <laughs> and we'll talk about what that hell really looks like. But uh, tell me a little more about Josh. What's Josh like? Josh is a good guy. If you knew Josh, you'd be happy to be his friend. He's He's a good guy. He's... He's got a very deep moral and ethical commitment and background, but he's working in the wrong place for him. He got involved. He went to, you know, high class schools, Haverford and Georgetown Law, ended up with over $300,000 worth of debt and got the opportunity to work in a big prestigious Philadelphia law firm. And so he did, but he had to put his ethics and morals aside, he feels, uh, to be able to do the kind of work that he does, which is environmental law. So he's a good guy, stuck in the wrong place, and kind of miserable about it, but really feels as though he has no choice but to be there. So he, he uh, is going through this transformation during the course of the novel from the beginning where he's more or less okay with what he's doing till the end uh, when he has grown quite a bit throughout the story. 
How much uh, Joel Burkott is there in uh, Josh Goldberg? You know, when you have a protagonist like that, uh, when I'm an environmental lawyer, I didn't go to Georgetown, but I'm an environmental lawyer, and um, you know, I've represented some clients that um, you know had their issues, and you know, there are times you ask yourself, "What am I doing?" And uh, so, and, but not just me. I mean, I've talked to many, many lawyers over the years, uh, really in the dozens, if not hundreds who had questions from time to time about what they were doing and about their clients. So yes, it's, there's, there's certainly a little bit of me in there and there's a little bit of a lot of other lawyers that I know who are in Josh. Mm. All right, so Keisha is uh, the fiance who, as you mentioned, is eight months pregnant. Right, can I say that I actually d didn't like Keisha that much? You know, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Okay, uh, and this is no, you know, the, when I say that, I mean, it, it's not that you, she wasn't well-written. It was just that she's eight months pregnant. She's engaged to Josh, but she's questioning her commitment to Josh, and she ends up in a hospital where she's longing for uh, this boyfriend who just happens to be her OBGYN. So, I don't know. I, I, when I looked at it, I was like, okay, you, you know, you, you're pregnant. You're getting married to this guy. Shouldn't you have a little more commitment? Well, keep in mind, she's been pregnant now for eight months, and neither one of them have gotten married. We make it, uh, or even express the desire to get married, and I, I make it very clear from the beginning that both of them have issues oh, yeah. relating back to their parents. Josh's parents had a terrible, terrible divorce. You learn early on that they're not, uh, not the greatest people. Uh, and Keisha just has her own commitment issues as well. And uh, so they both have commitment issues. Uh, Josh goes in one direction. Keisha goes in another direction. I threw the boyfriend in there. I figured uh, when uh, Anthony Souter showed up and, and, and she's shocked and he's shocked to see that in his hospital in Cincinnati, which is, you know, uh, 500 miles from uh, Philadelphia, is his former girlfriend, and, and she's shocked to see her former boyfriend, is her doctor. So, you know, she's, I would say she's a confused young woman, and she's going through a transformation as a confused person. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Souter is not exactly a, a fan favorite either. <laughs> he was he was he was actually a fun antagonist to write because he he's not expect you're not expected to like him just like you're not expected to like Diane. All right, let's talk a little bit about Diane. I said that uh, almost everyone has known a Diane. What's Diane's role in the in the story? Well, Diane is the antagonist. I mean, she is the one that uh, we want to hate. Uh, there's a quote that I have uh, over my desk. It says, "You're." your story is only as strong as your antagonist. And that's true. And so in this case, I have um, uh, Diane, who is, you know, the worst boss on earth, just the most miserable person. She, you know, she, um, you know, she is uh, difficult to deal with. She can spin on a dime, change on a dime, her positions on things, you know, but she's also very, very smart and very, very good at what she does. So the firm loves her. She, as I described early on in the story, you know, she's the firm's 2,000 pound gorilla, even though she weighs only about 105 pounds. So she is kind of the fair haired child because she has a gigantic book of business. You know, she attracts clients, and uh, and the firm loves her. The people who work for her, not so much. Yeah, and she's ambitious. She's very ambitious. She's very ambitious, and she's, uh, in fact, 
part of the reason that she jumps on the uh, in the in the Lincoln is because she wants to get back because she's about to be interviewed by a Norwegian billionaire for a gigantic uh, piece of legal work. And so that becomes a part of the story as well is, is she going to be able to hijack this uh, this trip to, so she can get to Philadelphia on time for this meeting with this billionaire? She's very, very ambitious. So let's talk about this storm. How would you describe the storm? I think you described it well. It is the storm from hell. And uh, the very, very beginning of the book, the prologue, is an introduction to this almost character in the story, Hurricane Epsilon. And uh, what we learn from uh, being aboard a Weatherbird C-130W aircraft, an Air Force aircraft, is just how unusual and how big this storm really is and how dangerous it is. And then as we see uh, later on, uh, a chapter or two later, we see the weatherman, you know, standing out in the middle of the storm. Which they always do. Risking his life, you know, and getting impaled almost by a uh, stop sign, um, at which they, again, all, always seem to do these days. And we learn how big and how awful the storm is. But we also begin to learn that the storm is induced by climate change and that uh, one of the things that uh, the IPCC, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has said is that uh, over time, and we're seeing it now, is that storm and storm events are going to get bigger and worse and more profound. And that is what this storm is all about. And this storm uh, ha- has it all. It's got a hurricane, of course, hurricane force winds, terrible torrential downpours, uh, tornadoes that are spun off from it. As we go further north, it turns into a bomb cyclone, which is yet another meteorolo- meteorological event. And we end up with a gigantic amount of snow falling up north in uh, Ohio. So uh, it is a terrible storm. It becomes really a character in the story. And, um, you know, it, 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 sort of like Jack London's uh, To Build a Fire, which I had in mind at times when I was writing this story about having as an antagonist in the story, the storm itself. Mm. There's even a debate about climate change in the book. It starts in Houston, as you mentioned. Uh, Josh is a presenter, and uh, there are energy companies that uh, are, are part of, uh, of this. Not as many show up because of the weather outside, and a lot of them want to get home. But uh, you, know, you, you even have a debate amongst uh, your Josh, who obviously is a believer and uh, knows what's going to happen with climate change, but even some climate change deniers. And I thought that was unique in that you have it coming out of characters' mouths rather than in a textbook form. Well, this is something that I really have tried to do in all of my books and certainly did it extensively in my previous book, uh, Strange Fire, about fracking. But, you know, there are two sides to every issue. And I'm well aware of the fact that there's another side to this issue. And so I have people who are likely to take positions such as energy company executives and uh, other lawyers who don't uh, go along with Josh's belief. And I have them presenting their positions, which are contrary to Josh's, and presenting them pretty strongly and stridently as well. And in fact, there's a scene early on in the story where one of the speakers at this this program that they're putting on gets into a fight, really, almost almost fisticuffs uh, with uh, one of the the members of the audience and have to be pulled away from each other. But throughout the story, there's this constant debate going on between Diane Diane and Josh, Diane representing the the people who don't believe in climate change, Josh rep- representing the believers. When you say there's two sides, though, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things we in the media 
uh, deal with often is that, you know, we know there are a lot of deniers out there, but uh, there are many more. 97% has been the figure that's been, uh, you know, tossed around in in the last uh, decade or so that of scientists who say that, you know, climate change is happening. So do you worry about giving equal weight to, you know, that debate? Uh, no, I didn't worry about that because... My personal belief is that climate change is very, very real. It's here. We're seeing the effects of it now. We see it when we have droughts like we've been having. We see it when every year is a hotter year than the previous year. We see it when there are forest fires, as we've had out west and throughout Europe and in Florida, of all places. We see it all over the world, the evidence of uh, climate change. Climate change is very, very real. But there are still many, many people who persist and who take strong positions that climate change isn't a real thing. So I try to present both sides. There's the the side that I agree with you, and I've read read that 97% statistic as well. And also, literally 100% of the national... Uh, NAS, uh, National Academy of Sciences, around the world take the position that climate change is very real. And the IPCC, which is very, very prestigious and very, very highly regarded, uh, takes a very strong position that climate change is real. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly people out there, people listening in right now, perhaps, who are saying, well, this is not a real thing. And I, I try to present their views in this story as well, because I think if it was just... If it was just, uh, you know, somebody standing on top of a mountain proclaiming these things, it would not nearly be as interesting as two people discussing it or ultimately arguing about it. You know, I, I was wondering as I was reading the book, does a, a fictionalized story talking about climate change uh, and having climate change in the background of a story like this, if that has even more of an impact on people who may not pay attention to what's going on in the world? In fact, uh, that's the reason why I wrote the story this way. And um, it's it's very important for people to, to read about things like this. So if somebody wants to read this just as a story about three people in a car driving through a hurricane and a tornado and all the things that happened to them, then that's great. They're going to they're gonna learn something along the way, just like in my previous novel, Strange Fire. If somebody wanted to just read about a, a, a dispute that was going on in northern PA uh, that happened to do with fracking, then they're also going to learn about fracking in that story, too. So that's one of the things I try to do in my stories is I try to educate people along the way so that they and, and I do it in a gentle way as well. I don't I don't beat people over the head with this information, but I do want them to, to learn something. And so that's that's what I do. And in fact, um, I, you and I talked before the program and, and you noted that Michael Mann is one of the endorsers right. of my story. Uh, we had a nice conversation a couple of months ago and he felt very strongly that people can learn an awful lot through fiction, more so sometimes than nonfiction. Michael Mann, uh, one of the world's renowned climatologists, uh, was at Penn State now. He's at the University of Pennsylvania, has written several books uh, and also is involved in the IPCC. Um, how does an environmental an energy lawyer become a novelist? You know, I always loved to write. I started writing in college. I put it down when I became a lawyer. And uh, then I started writing again more seriously about 15 years ago. I was uh, stuck in a place called Lubeck, Maine, which is the easternmost city, northeasternmost city in the United States. I had no internet access, no cell phone access, but I did have a laptop and I started writing. And after writing short stories for about a year, I uh, started writing a novel. Lubeck, Maine. Is that any... Uh 
Is it close to Holton, Maine, by any chance? I don't know. Okay. Lubeck is, is way up there, though. Okay, well, Holton is right on the border with Canada, and I just went, I'd been to, to Holton before. Uh, so your other books uh, feature environmental lawyers and timely issues. Is it a case of writing about what you know? To a certain extent. Yeah, to a certain extent it is. I mean, I write about what I know. I certainly write about this subject, which very much interests me. Plus, I've been the editor of two major uh, publications, the law, uh, Pennsylvania uh, Environmental Law and Policy, and also the Law of Oil and Gas in Pennsylvania. I've, I've been the, uh, one of the co-editor of both of those books. Uh, probably the public, the audience, wouldn't find that as compelling reading as uh, well <laughs> as your novels. They're pretty, they're pretty dry, but they're the kind of things that lawyers and that policymakers uh, have on their desks and, and read. So we only have about thirty seconds left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. So what's next for you? I mean, uh, it, it, it probably is a challenge to come up with a good story with these kind of backgrounds. But uh, what's next? Well, the very next thing is going to be on Tuesday night at the Midtown Scholar at 7 p.m. I will be uh, uh, having my launch party at Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg. So that's the very next thing that's happening. But right now I'm working on another book. I'm working on a number of projects. But one is called The Firebrand, which is about an environmental lawyer who's very frustrated with how long it's taking the state to do things. So he takes things into his own hands. And it sounds very realistic. (laughs) It could be. (laughs) Joel Burkett, thank you very much. The book is Reap the Wind. Scott, thank you very much, and good luck in your retirement many months from now. Thank you.